Well, I hope you've enjoyed uh, the Christmas Eve service so far. Our, our goal by this point was to have really shared much of the Christmas story. Uh, we've heard the readers go through already the, uh, the shepherds, uh, Mary and Joseph, the angels proclaiming that Christ is born. They're in Bethlehem. Uh, really, the, the major sort of high points of the Christmas story have all been shared except for one, and uh, that is the, the wise men, right? The wise men coming to visit uh, Jesus, born in Bethlehem, and uh, that's going to be our, our focus for the next uh, few minutes together, is we are going to look at uh, the wise men, uh, why, why they came, what it means. Um, I'd like to begin just by reading just the first few verses. This is all in Matthew chapter 2, and then we're going to kind of work our way through it. So let me just, to get us going here, um, verse 1 says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, typically when we think of the nativity, you've got the wise men on one side of the, the manger, and you've got the shepherds on the other. It all happens in one night. But uh, when you read through the Bible and look a little more carefully, you realize that actually it did not all happen in one night. This scene is probably a year and a half to two years after uh, the, the night where uh, Mary actually gave birth to Jesus. Uh, so there's a few reasons for that, uh, that we know that. For one, uh, as we're going to read through this passage, we're going to see that Jesus, uh, the word for him is a child, not baby. Big, big difference there. And also, uh, we're going to see that they're in a house, right? They're no longer in a, in a barn or a cave or something like that. And ultimately, we see that King Herod, who's going to enter the story, uh, when he tries to, to sort of snuff out this, uh, this prospective king, he kills all of the children who were two years of age and younger, thus telling us that what we're talking about here is potentially a, a two-year-old. Now, what these wise men come and ask is a question that we as a church have been looking at for the past month. That question is, where is the king? Where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? And what we've seen is that actually in the Bible, this is not the first time this question has been asked. There's a number of times way back to the Old Testament when God's people were asking, where, where is a king for us? Where is our king? Where is someone who will lead us and, and reign over us? And in fact, we've seen some answers to this question. Uh, there are some kings throughout the Old Testament that are prospective answers. So King Saul, King David, King Solomon, a whole bunch of other lesser kings that no one remembers their names. All of them are not the ultimate king. They, they, are, they are not the ones that could ultimately answer this question. In fact, they, they were not the ones who could fulfill the longings of the people's hearts for a true and, and righteous king. And they were not the ones who could fulfill the promise of God. Because God said, I am going to send you a king. A king who will rule and reign and his, his kingdom will last forever. So we've seen that Throughout the Old Testament especially, there are a bunch of, uh, we're going to call them appetizer kings, right? A foretaste, getting us ready for the main course. And here, at the tail end of the Christmas story, we have that main course. We have the true king. What you notice, though, is that in the story, there's actually two kings, right? It's not just Jesus, the child who was born king. There's also this King Herod. And we have this interesting contrast. So Matthew is the one uh, writing the Gospel of Matthew. And he intentionally contrasts these two kings. Because when you contrast something, you, you kind of get greater clarity about both of them, especially in the differences. Uh, like, like, for example, um, so it, it's Christmas, and I've been doing some Christmas shopping. And so uh, over the Christmas uh, season, Don and I were out, and I, I brought Don to a jewelry store. 
to look at some diamond earrings, right? And uh, if you've been to a jewelry store, you know that they have like a gazillion lights on the diamonds to make them sparkle. But they also, they also have this like black velvet underneath it so that the contrast brings out the, the sparkliness of the diamond, right? You can see the diamond better because of the, the dark background. That, that's what's going on here in the tale of these two kings. You have a very dark, we're going to see very dark human king, King Herod, full of evil and vileness, and then you have this, this human yet divine king, King Jesus, who sparkles in brilliance. Now, I don't want to suppose surprise, but you may be wondering, right, is Don going to get a little box tomorrow morning, open up? No, I just brought her to the jewelry store because I needed an illustration for being a <laughs> So she's, she's getting socks. She's going to love them, though. They're really nice socks. Okay. So the story continues. We have the wise men, right? They're entering Jerusalem. Um, they're asking around, where is this king, right? And here's verse 3. We start to see some of the reaction, some of the effect this has. Uh, verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem was troubled with him. So the wise men are asking around. And once Herod hears of it, he, I mean, he's agitated. And not just him, but the whole town. And you want to wonder, why is he so uptight? What, what's the deal? So what we're going to do is look at Herod the king, and then the wise men, and then Jesus the king, to, to come to an understanding of this whole scene and, and its meaning. So first thing about Herod, the reason that he's troubled, you think you need to know about him, he is called the king of the Jews, but that's because he wanted to be called the king of the Jews. He is a self-proclaimed king. Now, to really understand the big context of what's going on here, uh, we need to know kind of the, uh, the political climate of the time. So I've got a map for you. Uh, bear with me. This is a Christmas map. There's a Christmas laser pointer because it's red. So this here, all this green is the Roman Empire, right? We know the Roman Empire is, is huge, but what we don't realize is that there was a Persian Empire at the time, the Parthian Empire, that was almost as big, all right? So what we have is in the middle uh, is, this is Jerusalem. This is uh, Palestine. And so Rome and the Parthian Empire had been going back and forth for years over this kind of middle territory. And Herod's dad, he was once ruling over this area. The Parthians, the Persians came in, took it over. And so Herod fled back to Rome. And while he was there for the next couple of years, he tried to convince the Roman officials, look, I'm the guy to rule over this area. Just send me back. I'll take care of it. Everything will be great. Took him a few years, but finally the Roman Senate decided about the year 40 BC, said, okay, you will be called the king of the Jews. That's what he wanted to be called. And you can go. And they sent the Roman army with him. And he did finally conquer that territory. And so pushed the, the Parthian empire back. But the thing is, he had very clear instructions. The instructions were, look, we don't want any more trouble, right? We want you to keep the peace. And so now Herod is there as the, the king, the self-appointed king, and these wise men come, and they are asking some questions about a potentially legitimate king. So let's look at the first thing he does. Here's verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So he's asking his own wise men, what's the deal with this, this king that's been born? And they told him. In Bethlehem, in Bethlehem of Judea, so, for so it is written by the prophet. Uh, the prophet Micah wrote this, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So you notice here that the scholars of the time, they don't even have to look up the answer to his question. Herod says, where is there a king going to be born? Where is, oh yeah, uh, Bethlehem. Yeah, it's just a little ways outside of the city. They know right away. Which means for Herod, he knew right away that this was not... 
This was not some wild goose chase. This wasn't a hoax. What he knew is that more than likely at that moment, there was a child who had a legitimate claim to his throne. So the second thing you need to know about Herod is that uh, he was a ruthless defender of his throne. In fact, there's a long list of people that he killed so that they wouldn't be a threat to his reign as, as king. Here, here are some of them. There was an entire group of people called the Hasmoneans. He had them wiped out. They were a threat. His wife's brother, gone, killed. His wife's mother, killed. And then eventually he got around to assassinating his own wife and his three sons. Basically his whole family. Anyone who he thought might have an inkling that they want to take power from him, he had them killed. So that makes his reaction to these wise men very, very interesting, even puzzling. Because it's a very soft reaction for someone like that. Listen to what he says. So he finally gets all the background, then he calls in the wise men. This is verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now, I think we know that he had no intention of worshiping this child king. He was obviously just uh, buying some time so that he could go take care of the king on his own. But the real question, I think, in light of what we know about him as being a violent, paranoid man, is why didn't he just do the job right away? Right? Like, he had the Roman army there with him. Why didn't he just nab the wise men for spreading all these rumors, right, causing unrest? Or why didn't he follow them and just tell his troops, look, as soon as they start bowing down before someone, just kill everyone? Why, why the restraint? Well, the way to understand this is, is to understand who the wise men really were. Okay, now let's spend a little time here. Because the wise men, we know, were from the east. Look again at our map. That means that they were Persian, right? From somewhere in the Persian Empire. And they had seen this star and they had come west. Uh, the first thing about these wise men is that uh, they were magi. Magi were uh, magicians, priests, uh, occult. They dabbled in the occult. They really were involved in all of the religious rituals in the Persian Empire. Uh, magi is a title, sometimes you see that in a different Bible translation, uh, but it comes from the word magician. Uh, it, they were kind of like, um, you know in Europe where uh, someone gets a last name because of what they do, right? So John Baker was actually John the town baker. Mildred Smith was, uh, you know, the wife of the coppersmith. That's the magi. It's, it's who they are and it's what they do. And see, these magi had a huge amount of power in the Persian Empire. You can find them in every uh, Persian Empire at the court of the king. Uh, the Babylonian Empire, Medo-Persian Empire, they were always there. And they knew about the Jewish prophecy about this king because back in the day, Babylon had taken over Jerusalem. And they brought many of them back with them, one of them being Daniel. Remember Daniel in the lion's den? He was a magi. He was the one who taught all the other magi about these Jewish prophecies. So they had the, they had the Old Testament prophecies, they saw the star, they had come, and they were looking for this king. The other thing we need to realize about the, the wise men, though, is that they didn't just have religious influence, they also had a lot of political influence. They were the ones who would approve of and crown every Persian king. So in a real sense, the, the wise men were Persian kingmakers. So this picture we have, you know, in the cartoons of kind of the bumbling wise men, they're cracking jokes, right? They're riding on the camels. They're the comic relief from the East. That's not what we find in the Bible or in history. These guys were legit. They come riding in, probably not on camels, probably on Persian stallions. They were kingmakers. And remember the tension that existed. 
Herod had been told, you got to keep the peace. Right? Look at the map one more time. See, there's just as much of this empire as this empire. And Herod is right in the middle. So he knows he can't kill these wise men. Right? If he kills them, he's going to start a war. So he's got to play it cool. Right? He's got to use some deceit and tell him, you go and worship the child. I'll come after and worship him. You just come and tell me where he is. So that brings us to the second king. Brings us to King Jesus. And I'm going to read the last part of our, of our text. Matthew 2, verses 9 to 11. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. So there's a striking contrast between this, this king, this human king, cloaked in, in evil and deceit and murder and violence. And now we have this child king. This, this child king who evokes spontaneous worship in these kingmakers. This, this child king who is heralded by a star. Clearly, we can see in this scene that the quest is over. Right? Clearly, these wise men who'd, who've been asking, where is the king? They, they, have, they have found him. The true king of Israel is, is there. This, this scene, the whole Christmas story, leads to this climax of finding this child who has been prophesied about for generations and now is proclaimed king. Now, his, his circumstances are far from typical for a king. There's no palace, no honor guard, not celebrated in the capital city, but all of those things only go to show that he is the true king. Not a king by human wisdom or human power, but a king according to divine decree. See, Jesus is the fulfiller of ancient prophecies that foretold of a child who would be born in Bethlehem. Jesus is the one who was born of a virgin mother. Jesus is the one who's heralded by angels. He's the one whose arrival is broadcast across the land by the celestial supernatural light in the sky. Jesus is the one who is worshipped by the Persian kingmakers from the east who bring him gifts as they would to royalty. See, like that diamond that I, that I didn't buy Don, like that diamond, he, Jesus sparkles and shines in, in, in this dark background of a scene. And what we see here is that Jesus is, in fact, the true king. He is the answer to the question that God's people have been asking for generations. Where is the king? God says he's right here. He's exactly where I said he would be. In Bethlehem, heralded by a star, the servant king come to serve his people. So we know the answer to the question. In fact, the truth is, we've known the answer to this question for 2,000 plus years, right? That's when Jesus was born. 2,000 some odd years ago is when he was born. We have known the answer to where's the king ever since then. In fact, by this point, it'd probably be fair to say that that's kind of an outdated question. It's not a question that people are asking anymore. Probably a better question for us is, do we even want a king? I mean, how many people have you ever heard say, you know what I really need right now is a king, no one, when life is going bad, said, man, if we only had a king. If I just had a king to rule and reign over my life, right, someone to tell me what to do, someone to make royal decrees and make speeches, then things would be going better. Why don't we have a king? Why don't we have a queen? I know we have a queen, but you know what I mean, like for our lives. Not just a figurehead, but an actual ruling monarch. We love the queen. We love watching the crown. 
right? We love reading about the royal family. Every time I'm in the grocery store, I pretend not to. I'm looking at the magazines. Oh, what's going on next with Prince Harry? We want to know. That's very different than having a king rule and reign over us. No one wants that. Why? Because we prefer to rule over ourselves. Right? When we're comfortable with that. See, back in the day, kings had real value. For people back then, they wanted a king because a king meant protection. A king meant security against the enemies that surrounded them. Kings offered a provision, a sense of identity, a sense of honor, hope for the future. All of that was wrapped up in having a strong and righteous monarch. But for us, we, I mean, we take care of those things, don't we? We make our way in the world using our ingenuity and our wisdom. We form relationships with the people around us to form communities and towns and, and nations. We vote in those people who are going to rule over us. If we don't like them, then we vote them out. We, we rule and reign in, in so many ways, and we're, we're seemingly satisfied by much of it. I mean, our hope for the future comes from what we've done in the past. We build on what's been happening in our civilization and, and form new policies, new technology as a hope for, for the future. You can imagine most people in our, in our community saying, why, why would I want a king or a queen or, or a god to rule over me? We've got things well in hand. But what if it's not a matter of wanting a king? What if it's a matter of needing a king? See, everything I just said about humanity, I think, I think it's true, right? We are working hard. We're trying to build a community for ourselves as individuals and as a people. We're trying to make things better. But what's also true is that even though we try really hard, the life that we're building, it, it does also tend to fall apart, doesn't it? I mean, we can work very hard at getting security or hope or joy for ourselves, and yet there's something, something from outside, something from inside that tends to undermine that goal. We're very often disappointed and frustrated with life. And very often, if, if we're honest, we'll say that that the common denominator of our frustration is actually us, that we are part of the problem. Let me give you an example of kind of a microcosm of how this works for the human race. Uh, last Thursday was a very important day, almost as important as Christmas Eve. Uh, it was the day that the new Star Wars was released, as I'm sure you know. Uh, so my friend uh, got tickets to opening night, 7.30 show. So just imagine like the coolest bunch of people you can you know, think of, all in one room, wearing Wookiee costumes. That was us. Um, so everyone is very excited, and just before the movie started, there was someone in the front row, and he yells back at everyone, turn off your phones! And he, we all laugh, of course, turn off your phones, of course. Well, five minutes into the movie, so there's the opening thing, right? The credits rolling, not the credits, but the, the yellow words, you know. Uh, the second scene, there's someone next to this guy who started checking their phone, and this guy goes ballistic. He stands up, I'm about two rows back, and he stands up and he starts yelling at him, like looking down at him, what are you doing on your phone? The movie's on, what's wrong with you? Screaming, yelling, swearing at him. He keeps saying, I waited a year for this, what's wrong with you? Eventually everyone's like, hey, we, we can't, we're totally distracted, right? The first scene when the Millennium Falcon explodes, oh, I shouldn't have said it. Anyway, that, I'm just saying that I couldn't, I couldn't see the movie. So eventually they have to bring the lights up. The theater staff comes in, he's still yelling for like five minutes yelling at this guy. And then eventually he turns around, all of us are saying, boo, boo, go away, you're a horrible person, go, boo. He yells at us, right? You might've seen this on the news actually. He's yelling and screaming at us, get off your phones, everyone, you're horrible. I waited a year for this movie. Finally, he leaves, everyone cheers. They restart the movie and we watch Star Wars. I won't tell anymore, but 
Here's my point. Someone's phone is, wait. It's all right. I've learned. I've learned. I control myself. Here's the thing with this guy. This guy, the thing he kept saying, the reason I tell you this story is he kept saying, I have waited a year for this movie. I don't think he was just blowing smoke. I think he really did love Star Wars. I think he was really excited about seeing this movie. But the thing of it is, because he could not control his anger, he ruined the very thing that he was so excited about. Right? He was the reason. He ruined it for all of us, of course, but then he got kicked out. He didn't even get to see it. And I thought to myself, man, that, isn't that a human being? Doesn't that feel familiar? That we tend to ruin the very things that we think are going to bring us our greatest joy and happiness. As I think back on my life, many times have I ruined relationships, hurt people around me because I can't control myself, because of my anger. There's a whole list of things that come from within us that tend to undermine the great life that we're trying to build. Anger, pride, uh, anxiety, self-pity, all of those things. All of those things are the real threat to our happiness in life. And the Bible has a name for all of those things. It calls it sin. Right? Sin is the moral imperfection of humanity. Sin is the reason that as a human race, we can make such huge advancements when it comes to medical science and technology, but we can't become better people. Sin is the reason that we don't make very good kings or queens. See, what if we started to realize that despite our best efforts, we don't have the power or the moral perfection to bring ourselves the lasting joy and hope and peace that we were looking for? See, then we might see a need for a king. A king who does have the power to save us. Not just from the things outside of us, but, but from ourselves. And you know, when you look closely at the Christmas story, that's exactly the kind of king that Jesus is. Look at Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 20. We've already heard this read, but let's look back to it. This is when the angel's speaking to Joseph. The angel says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. See, Jesus is the true and better king because he's a different kind of king. Right? He's, he's a king that doesn't come in, in strength but comes in weakness. He's a king that comes to serve and not be served. He's a king that at the climax of his life here on earth, he doesn't seek to ascend a throne, but he ascends a cross. And he does that because he wants to provide an answer to the thing that we're all longing for, which is genuine hope and peace and joy. And the only way to do that was to deal with the problem of sin. And that's what the cross was all about, that he took the penalty of sin, the destruction that sin brings to each human being, he took it upon himself so that we would have Lasting peace and hope and joy if we have faith in him. See, Jesus, he is the true and better king because he is a hopeful, peaceful, and joyful king. I say peaceful because Jesus, he does bring us peace between us and God. Hopeful because he rose from the dead. Even though he took sin upon himself, the sinless being, he rose from the dead. That promise is a life eternal for all of us who have faith in him. And he is a joyful king because in him we find a renewal of ourselves. We find the answer to the very thing within us that tends to, to break down all of the, the joy and happiness that we're trying to construct. In fact, he now becomes our source of joy and happiness, the creator of the universe who came to us as a king 
and died in our place. See, this Christmas story is a, is a story on a grand scale. I mean, we've seen by this point some of the, the epic things that now have become sort of like a quaint tradition, that we read the story and we feel warm and fuzzy, but really what we see here is that this is an epic story about the beginning of God's saving plan for all of humanity. And I want to read to you the last verse uh, for today. Verse 12, this is what happens with the wise men, right? Herod said, come back to me, let me know where the child is, here's what happens. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So they get wise to what Herod is doing. They go another way. And if you're wondering if Herod just leaves it at that, the answer is no, right? He, he, will, he can't let there be a, a child somewhere who might be king. If, if you come back on Sunday, we're going to read through the last part of chapter two and see how he tries to, to grab hold of his throne. But for tonight, tonight my hope is that we see the arrival of this child king as not just some quaint Christmas story, but we see it as a real answer from God for the things that each human being is longing for. And my hope is that you see that the question for us now no longer is where is the king, but, but do we see our need for a king? Not a cruel king, not a false king, but a true king who came to save us from our very selves. We're gonna sing a final song about this child king, but let me pray for us and then, uh, and then we'll go into it. I've got some instructions involving fire, so... Lord God, we thank you for the Christmas story. Thank you that each, each year, the rhythm of our church, rhythm of our, of our community, we get to remember and rejoice in the arrival of, of you, Jesus, as our King and as our Savior. I pray that you would help each one of us this Christmas season to, to see ourselves clearly, to see the, the truth that despite our best efforts, there are still great areas of disappointment in our life and questions about our hope for the future. I pray, Lord Jesus, that each one of us would come to see you as Savior and Lord and that we might have a secure hope and a secure joy. And I pray for your blessing on everyone here. God, may we know you more. May we indeed be comforted and joyful this Christmas season. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.